You're listening to BuddhistGeeks.com. April 16th, 2007. Episode 15 is Zen Enough. In this segment, Gimpo Roshi goes into an eloquent description of the role that the big mind process, the Zen and Koan practice can play in a more whole and integrated Zen training. He also touches on the development of the spiritual practitioner and his understanding of how one can progress through this developmental territory. This is an exciting conversation with one of the most controversial and perhaps most brilliant Zen masters alive today. This is part two of a three-part series. If you're one of the thousand plus listeners who enjoy our podcasts, please take a couple of minutes to vote for us in the Blogger's Choice Awards where we are nominated for the Best Religion Blog. Visit www.bloggerschoiceawards.com to vote, or find a direct link to our nomination on our site. We humbly bow to you and thank you for your support. So in Integral Theory, uh, Wilbur distinguishes between a state and a stage. So That's correct. we would call this a state. A Kensho experience would be called a state. That's correct. Uh, however, in the path of the human being, I, call, I talk about the five stages of the path of the human being, which based, is based on Zen master Tozans, who was the founder of the Soto school, who lived, you know, more than a thousand years ago. Uh, those are stages of development. So state and stages are two different aspects, but we can get in touch with any state at whatever stage level we're at. We can also get in touch with every stage, no matter what stage or state we are at. Uh, They're both accessible. However, we can't seem to skip stages, but we can accelerate our movement through them. That's a lot of what the big mind work is about. It's rather than, like I've gotten stuck in certain stage developments in the five ranks, uh, sometimes as much as a decade, sometimes 15 years. What I am looking to do, and it's yet to be seen whether it really does this or not, it's still an experiment in process, is can it help people move through these stages in a more rapid way? So instead of taking 10, 15 years, maybe a person's in a stage for a couple of years, or five years, or one year, rather than 15 years. Does that answer your question? Sure, definitely. I'd like to get back to the question about voice dialogue, if we can, one more time. Um, you say that what you love about voice dialogue is it makes Zen training truly healthy and grounded. And you say that Zen itself is basically a radical practice. It's about cutting our attachments, the ropes and chains that bind us, cutting, cutting, cutting. And it can leave us feeling very ungrounded, particularly at a more psychological level. And I find when people talk about Zen, and perhaps one of the reasons I've... Uh, accepted other styles of Buddhism into my practice, like Shambhala or Pure Land Buddhism, it's because of that, for that very reason. Um, So this, as I read the book, I did feel as though this is a more kind of holistic approach to the self, uh, rather than slicing and dicing, there is some feeling of uh, welcoming or inviting all of those parts of us to speak, rather than maybe pretending like they, they don't exist. So I, maybe I'm misreading, but that was what no, I No, no. Can I, can I say something? You're very wise. 
you know. Uh, first of all, that you saw that in the beginning and have done other forms of Buddhist practice. All the way through my Buddhist training, I did all kinds of other forms of practice myself, uh, including psychotherapy, gestalt therapy, all kinds of different things. Uh, because I felt that I personally needed to do that, I also needed to ground my Buddhist practice. Uh, I do feel that in our culture, Western culture, uh, Zen Buddhism by itself isn't really enough. Now, it could be for some people, uh, but generally speaking, for most people, uh, we're going to need to bring in and supplement just sitting on a cushion with some kind of work on ourselves. Uh, I think in the tradition, there were other works being done when one was practicing very often Zen practice. Uh, in the West, the way Buddhism or Zen Buddhism, let's say, came uh, to the West was basically sessions. Uh, people came over here and started doing sessions uh, with Americans, and then we formed Zen centers, and we began practicing in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, but the basic practice was pretty much Zazen. We didn't do a lot of sutra training. We didn't do a lot of other kinds of training that might have been done uh, in Asia. I do feel here we don't have Confucianism. We don't have the same grounding that the Asians had. So to me, what I have witnessed, and this is now 36 years of practice, is that one can get very deep into Zazen, and actually have many openings, and even have a daikensho, a great enlightenment experience, and still be pretty screwed up uh, on a lot of levels. And what I feel is that the big mind works, which incorporates the voice dialogue and the Zen training, addresses particularly the shadow or disowned voices or disowned aspects of the self. And there are so many places that we can get stuck. Like, let me give you some examples. Uh, if I have an experience of not knowing, uh, and I, I realize I don't know, I can get stuck in that idea that I don't know and nobody knows. So what's the shadow? If I know I don't know, then what's my shadow? My shadow is that anybody who thinks they know or even if I think I should know, that becomes somehow wrong. And therefore, those of us who don't know are better than those who know. And in my work, what I try to do is draw a triangle. So if we look at a triangle and we look at, let's say, the left-hand base of the triangle, that's the voice of knowing. But if we look at the right-hand base of that same triangle, that's the voice of not knowing. And both are legitimate. The one on the right-hand side is the transcendent, or that which goes beyond knowing. But in our practice, what we want is to get to the apex of that triangle, which embraces and includes both knowing and not knowing. And so I include that I can know, I know certain things, and there are certain things I can't know, and that they are not mutually exclusive. And that's actually what's called Abhidharma, when 
we get to that apex of the triangle, that's the Abhidharma. That's where we include both the self and the no-self, the dualistic mind and the non-dual mind. Uh, and that's a healthy place to be rather than stuck on the right-hand side of the triangle in the transcendent, which I have seen many, many long-time Zen people, including teachers, uh, including myself, get stuck there. And what happens when we get stuck and when we're not seeing from this non-dual perspective? You say in your book, it's as if we've frozen ourselves into a solid chunk of ice, taken the natural fluid flow of the universe and frozen it and called it myself. So we get really attached to this idea of this is what I am. So I just thought it was a beautiful metaphor to see ourselves as like chunks of ice bumping into other chunks of ice. Exactly. But yeah, our natural way of being is very fluid. Our artificial, or the normal way most of us are, is more like chunks of ice. So the more, the more we know ourselves, the more we uh, become intimate and know ourselves, the more fluid we become. But catch 22 of Zen and Zazen, you say, what all these practices have in common is that they give you something to do in order to get to a desired goal or state of mind. Very seldom do we start people with just sitting, but in most of these traditions, it would take years of seeking to have a breakthrough to realize, after all, the absurdity of seeking. Because the very seeking for truth or for enlightenment, that very seeking is actually the barrier that prevents us from attaining what we are seeking. So the seeking is and the grasping is problematic. So later on in the book, you talk about not grasping to this big mind process either. You know, you can use it as a tool, but don't, you know, don't become fixated on uh, what you've learned or what you've experienced during the big mind process. Or if you've had a Kinsho state, let it go. I mean, that's an important part of the practice, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. All these are skillful means, and we call it upaya. So there is shikantaza, which is just sitting. That's upaya, a skillful means. There's koan practice, which some people do reject koans, uh, but koans are a beautiful upaya, a beautiful skillful means. Uh, and then counting the breaths, following the breaths, all of these are skillful means. And big mind is just another skillful means. It's not the answer, but it's a process I look at it like the three legs of a stool. Uh, you've got shikantaza or zazen as one leg of the stool, koan practice as another leg of the stool, and the big mind as the third leg of the stool. Uh, so you've got these three pillars uh, of the stool, which makes it much more stable than one or two legs. So I wouldn't say that any of those can be just thrown away. Uh, they're all important elements. And the big mind, what it does is it allows us to gain insight at a much more accelerated rate than either koans or shikantaza. But we need the shikantaza to stabilize the insight uh, and to begin to embody the insight. So zazen is absolutely essential if we want to integrate and, and uh, incorporate the insight into our life. The koans serve another purpose that Big Mind does not serve, and Shikantaza doesn't, and that is how to express uh, the non-dual in a very precise and pithy way, that it's right to the point. Koans are the best thing I've come across to teach that, 
Big Mind doesn't teach that. Shikantazi doesn't teach that. And people who lack koan practice very often will fall into what we call in Zen the trap of using dead expressions rather than living or live words or live Zen. And so we get into explanatory explanation about our understanding rather than uh, very uh, alive. Like, let me give you an example. Uh, if you shoved me into a lake right now, in the middle of March, uh, and I jumped out and I said, boy, was that cold. That would be dead words. But if you shoved me into that lake and I, whoosh, That's living words. That's a life expression. Koans teach that better than any other method, better than uh, Big Mind, better than Shikantaza. So for me, they're all absolutely essential. And when we get stuck with, you only sit, that's the only way. Or you only study, that's the only way. Or you only do Big Mind, that's the way. Or only do koans, that's the way. It seems to me a little immature. You teach all three and then some at Kanzian? That's, yeah, that's correct. We have the opportunity, everybody has the opportunity to do koan practice if they want, but they don't have to, to do big mind if they want, but they don't have to, and to sit if they want, and they don't have to. So we have people doing all three. We, we have some people who do two out of three, and we have some people who do only one. So you used the word accelerate earlier, and I think that's where perhaps some of your critics uh, get hung up. They think... Well, here's a quote uh, that was recently out in the Budo blogosphere, if you will. Buddhist practice is, a difficult, is difficult and takes a lot of time, effort, and energy. I know, when, I know no one likes hearing that, but tough titty if you don't. There are no shortcuts. There are no easy ways to circumvent the pain and difficulty of practice any more than there are ways to develop Arnie-style guns without working out, out for years. Uh, I was stuck there for nearly 30 years, uh, from 1971 to 1999, in that same understanding and same belief. And it was actually, when I read uh, for about the dozenth time, uh, Zen master Banke, and an analogy that Banke used, that I uh, got unstuck from that opinion or idea. And what I read, and the analogy is this, that if we were all on a journey to climb to the top of a mountain and we ran out of water and we took, we, let's say we chose one person or maybe two or three people who were stronger hikers, uh, healthier, you know, more conditioned, and we said, take the water bags, find water, please. So one, two or three individuals went out and searched of water and they went through all kinds of difficulty. And they had a very hard journey. It was took a long time. But finally, they found water somewhere close to the top of the mountain or maybe on the top of the mountain. Well, what did they do? Well, the first thing, obvious thing they got to do is drink the water because they're thirsty. And they need the water in order to get back down the mountain. The second thing they have to do is fill the bags up with water. Now, if they drink the water and go on to the top of this mountain, that's more of a hedonistic practice. It's more self-realization for oneself rather than for others. So they fill the bags, and they make the journey back down. They descend the mountain. 
Well, then what do they do? Say, listen, this is a hard journey. It's really tough. Uh, you've got to do it on your own. Uh, go for it. Therefore, I'm not giving you any water. You know, it, that's ridiculous. You give them the water and you say, it is a tough journey. And there's no, you can't skip any part of it. You've got to find this water now yourself. But here's some water to take on your journey as you're looking for the source of the water. Uh, that's what Big Mind is. It's not saying to anybody, uh, you don't have to make the journey. Now, maybe on that trip, you discover some ways that might save people falling into some crevices or, you know, going in the wrong direction. So you do save them some time. So all teachings about doing that, really, is trying to warn people where the pitfalls are, where the mines are, where the crevices are. That's what teaching is. I've been teaching for five years. Uh, that's a long time. I started teaching in 72, 73. Uh, it's a long time to be doing the traditional teaching. If I didn't think that this really served a purpose, one of the purposes is giving people the water or a light, like a torch, either way, or water to do the trip, and it didn't save them some arduous you know, trials and tribulations, it didn't do that, I'd go back to the traditional way, just sit on your cushion. I taught that for years. I'd go back to just koans. I taught that for years. Uh, I really do, in my heart of heart, believe this works. It does accelerate their practice. I've watched it now for eight years. I'll tell you, people are nicer. People are more loving and compassionate. People have less shadows about it. Uh, the proof's in the pudding. I'm seeing the results. That's why I'm sold on it. I understand that criticism. Uh, I was there. Uh, I think it's a legitimate criticism if you've never done the work or if you've never seen people go through the process. When I see 200 people, we had 250 people in Holland for our 10-day retreat this last January. That's unheard of. Right? 250 people for 10 days, and every one of them were able to get it. Their practice improves. Their understanding improves, it accelerates their practice, it moves them through the various stages quicker. That's, I mean, that's more important than somebody's critique of it. Uh, with any critic, uh, I invite them free of charge to come watch a, a workshop. They don't even have to participate, they can just witness it, they can participate. I've offered to send DVDs to anybody who's never done the process that is critical of it, that doesn't believe it, they can witness it. Um, I've offered my book to people um, that they read it like you've read it. Uh, I mean, I understand because I was a very traditionalist. I mean, Soto Zen, traditional, all of it. I just have seen, or my eyes have been opened, that there are ways that in the West we can improve the practice, for Westerners at least. What do you think Maizumi Roshi would say? Well, I talked to Bernie about this just yesterday, or the day before yesterday, Bernie Klassman Roshi, and I, I spoke to other uh, successors of Maizumi Roshi, and they all agree he would be thrilled to death, maybe to death, uh, he'd be thrilled when he saw, when he saw the results of it, he would be shocked at seeing, for the first time, uh, 
He saw me doing this, he'd be shocked. But in the end, he would just love the results. Bernie is convinced of that, and so are other people. So uh, I always say, yeah, he might turn over in his grave if he saw how I was doing this. But I'm convinced in the end he'd be, he'd be really happy. Now, Maizumi Roshi gave me some, um, I don't know what you can call it, uh, objectives, things that he wanted to see me do. And one of them was revitalize Zen Buddhism, particularly the koan practice, but the whole practice. And, you know, he gave me a name in 1973 because he saw something. My full name is Soten Genpo. And as you know, Genpo is what I go by. But Soten Genpo, actually, So is patriarch. Gen is heaven. Uh, Gen is esoteric or mysterious. Imposed Dharma. So Heavenly Patriarch, the Esoteric Dharma, is the handle he put on me in 73. And um, he wanted me to revitalize Zen. That's what I'm trying to do as best as I can. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by C for Chaos. For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.seeforchaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.